Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Karen Tkach Tuzman, Senior Editor. And Paul Bonanos, Associate Editor. On this week's pod, Merck's $11 billion takeout of Acceleron. What does it say about the state of M&A as we ease into the fourth quarter? Novartis CEO Vas Narasimhan says industry must stand hard against drug pricing bill HR3, and a federal appeals court rules FDA's attempt to thwart the high price for an old drug violates the Orphan Drug Act. And Karen is back for her monthly dose of what's on tap in translational news. Today's podcast is brought to you by WBB Securities, the banking leader in customized financial solutions in the life sciences space. Currently presenting on its website, SARS-CoV-2 Beyond Delta. Check out their website, www.wbbsec.com for more details. Paul, it was a busy week in deal-making last week. We covered a few smaller deals, and then we got the uh, very hyped, long-teased Merck acquisition of Acceleron. What drove this deal? Well, as you say, it was it was teased for a while, and, and there had been some rumors circulating, but the deal was done on Thursday, and it was announced on Thursday. And it's the year's biggest M&A deal so far. As you mentioned uh, early, M&A activity has been picking up lately after a very slow several months. We've seen a few other deals, Sanofi Translate Bio and Bayer Vividian among them in the billion dollar range. Our colleague, Stephen Hansen, has been reporting on some of the reasons why. And I think you'll, you'll see that in a future story. I don't want to give away too much now, but yeah, valuations have been coming down and there are some cash rich buyers out there who are, have been looking to build their pipelines. And in Merck's case, that pharma has been looking for ways to build future revenue in a pretty long view. Once Keytruda loses patent exclusivity, that's obviously their cancer blockbuster, and they lose patent coverage starting in 2028. So this is one of the ways that they're building. And in Acceleron, Merck sees a company with a potential blockbuster asset, which is Sotatercept. It's in phase three testing for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And just to be clear, Acceleron has one other marketed drug. It's called Reblozil. It's also known as Lucepatercept. But that one is partnered with Bristol-Myers Squibb already under a deal that Celgene struck before that takeout. It does deliver meaningful royalties to Acceleron to the tune of about $55 million last year. And the two compounds are related. They both affect signaling in the TGF-beta superfamily. But so Tattercept is really the driver of the deal. And one thing that I think is interesting about it is that compound was also partnered with Celgene along with Los Patercept in a very old deal, 2008. But for a while there, its future had turned rather uncertain. They decided not to move forward with it in chronic kidney disease. It had been tested for some other indications. Multiple myeloma was one. And as recently as 2017, they were evaluating their options and weren't really sure what to do with it. But at their R&D day that year, Acceleron presented some preclinical evidence suggesting its future was in PAH, and Acceleron at the same time announced that they had reacquired full rights to Sotatercept in that indication. Four years later, here we are. They've got good phase two data, compounds in phase three, 
and it's the keystone of an $11.5 billion takeout by Merck. Now, so, so Paul, yeah. uh, Keytruda makes up, is it a third of Merck's I, I, overall sales? I think it was right there at 30% last year. And, and what are the sales expectations for this drug? Um, Acceleron, or, or during a, a conference call, rather, on Thursday, Merck pegged the market for the market for PAH to be above $7 billion by 2026, I believe. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say that they'd get all of that market, but they see it as a potential blockbuster for sure. What else do they have in CV? Good question. Yeah, so it's a fit for them. They do have a cardiovascular portfolio. A lot of it is lipid-lowering drugs like Zetia, Zetimibe, I believe that's pronounced. There's one other PAH drug, so they already have some commercial infrastructure for Adempus, which is from a deal with Bayer. And it's worth mentioning also, Bristol would still get a royalty in the low 20s if Sotatercept is approved. You'd have a somewhat unusual situation where Acceleron's two drugs are marketed by two different pharmas that pay royalties to each other. All right. And you mentioned that this is the largest proposed deal for a biopharma this year. Uh, Number two would be GW getting taken out by Jazz Pharma, and that was $7.2 billion. And this is the first major deal for Merck's new CEO, Robert Davis, who took over in July. He spent the past seven years as CFO and Kenneth Frazier, of course, now executive chairman. As Paul alluded to, our colleague Stephen Hansen is working on a story that will, in part, look at M&A. It is our fourth quarter financial markets preview, and that will come out later this week. Paul, we mentioned uh, there were a couple other deals last week that you were looking into. Uh, What were those? So AstraZeneca bought out a single asset biotech called Calum that it already had a stake in. That also, like the situation with Bristol and Celgene, it was also inherited via AstraZeneca's purchase of Alexion that just closed this summer. And in Calum, AstraZeneca gets a MAB that's in phase three testing for a form of amyloidosis. It's light chain amyloidosis. Astra is paying $150 million for roughly 80% of Kalim that it didn't already own. This does represent an exit for Fortress Biotech, which was Kalim's largest shareholder. And there are milestones that could add up to another $350 million for shareholders too. Light chain amyloidosis has been a tricky field. There have been some failures. And there is one, one drug that's approved, Darzalex, the anti-CD38 MAV from J&J, has accelerated approval in some populations. But I think it's interesting that Kalem's compound may be able to reach more patients. One of the phase three trials is in Mayo stage 3B patients who are specifically contraindicated in Darzalex's label. So the asset, Kale 101 is what it's called, could be very meaningful for certain patients. And then there's one more deal from midweek. Amicus, the rare disease company that's been mostly focused on Fabre and Pompe diseases, has also been building a gene therapy pipeline for some time, and now it's spinning out its genetic medicines business into a separate company that will be publicly traded via a merger with a SPAC, the blank check companies, that have been a, a vehicle for going public for a lot of biotechs lately. Notably, John Crowley, the longtime Amicus CEO, will move over to become CEO of the new company, Caritas. And he'll be chairman emeritus at Amicus. He'll hand over the CEO spot to the president and COO, Bradley Campbell. So the outcome will be that there's an innovative, 
pipeline-driven company called Caritas with gene therapies and such, and a commercial stage company that will sell Galafold, which is the approved product that Amicus has for Fabre. And it's got one more product that FDA is now reviewing. It's a two-component product for Pompeii. I wanted to jump in real quick about Merck. You, you mentioned the patent clip on Keytruda. It's not going to replace Keytruda in terms of revenues, but it will be an important drug, both from a commercial standpoint, probably several billion dollars a year in sales starting in 2022 and potentially have a tremendous public health impact. The um, oral COVID therapy that Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics are developing. The other thing I think to, to look at along those lines are the other oral COVID therapies that are coming along that we're going to see see readouts for sometime between now and the end of the year. One from Atia Pharmaceuticals and Roche and another one from Pfizer. And Steve, you recently talked to the CEO of Novartis about a couple of things. Top of mind was drug pricing. What did he have to say about HR3? So we talked about HR3 and similar legislation that Democrats in the House of Representatives are trying to have included in the social spending bill that they hope to pass using budget reconciliation. And we asked him if industry should kind of back off and try to preserve the goodwill that it's earned by developing COVID vaccines and therapeutics. He basically said, no, this isn't the time to try to hold back. The fate of the industry is at stake and kind of damn the torpedoes. Everybody's got to go out and try to fight against this. That was his way of stating it. He said they have to stand hard. And he made it personal for BioCentury. He said that if the price controls that are envisioned in HR3 are passed, within a few years, BioCentury won't have anything to write about because innovative R&D will dry up. It's similar to the message that we've been hearing from venture capitalists. He did mention steps that the farm industry is willing to accept, including a restructuring of Medicare Part D that would impose new costs on industry and industry's hope that government will include a cap on out-of-pocket expenses for Medicare beneficiaries. You also spoke to him a bit about this cool deal that they did with the NHS for Lecvio. That is Novartis's cholesterol-lowering drug. Novartis negotiated a population-based contract with the UK's NHS. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Steve, and, and whether they hope to expand it to other countries? Yeah, so Lecvio is a cholesterol-lowering drug, as you mentioned. It was almost co-developed with the NHS. The, the UK supported a lot of the trials that were used to get it approved in Europe. It hasn't been approved in the United States yet. There's a marketing application that's pending. And Novartis negotiated a contract with the NHS. The terms of it haven't been released, but under the contract, Novartis is hoping that somewhere between 300,000 and a million Brits might get access to the drug. Interestingly, Novartis doesn't have to market it to them. The, the NHS, the National Health Service, is going to go through its databases. It's going to find people who are likely to benefit from the drug, and it's going to contact their physicians and suggest that they give it to these, these patients. When I talked to Voss about it, I asked him if this would be a model for other drugs, and he said it, it is, but they have to meet some criteria. They have to be unambiguously effective. They have to treat a condition that's of public health importance. And interestingly, he said it's really important that they have infrequent dosing. He said one of the big problems in 
treating cardiovascular disease and other chronic conditions with drugs that have to be taken on a daily or, or, or weekly basis by patients is that patients don't adhere to them. So the thing with Lecvio is it's an sRNA. It's only uh, dosed twice a year. He mentioned that the same model is applicable to Zolgensma. That's a gene therapy for SMA. It's a once and done therapy. At least that's what Novartis hopes. And he said that he thinks that this model could be applied for gene therapies and for other kind of therapies that are dosed like Lecvio on a very infrequent basis. Novartis is negotiating similar deals to the population-based deal that it's got in the UK for Lecvio in other countries. And he said that Novartis hopes to have deals in the United States with integrated health systems that would be similar to the NHS deal. All right. And now for our monthly treat, what's on tap in the distillery with KTT? Thanks, Jeff. Biocentrase Distillery is a collection of brief summaries of translational studies from top journals that we pick out for their direct relevance to drug development. They're either proposing a new therapeutic target or they're proposing uh, new compounds to go after established therapeutic targets. And so we're really combing the literature from academia to find papers that represent new translational opportunities. We've got a nice batch of them out, but two I wanted to highlight. One was from the storied producer of uh, new IL-2 variants, Chris Garcia. He's a Stanford professor who has co-founded ALX and Sorosin, Synthokine, and 3T Biosciences. In this paper, he actually teamed up with Nick Restifo, who used to be at National Cancer Institute, but is now Executive Vice President of Research at Lyle Immunopharma, which is developing cell therapies for cancer. And their two labs put together an IL-2 partial agonist. What it does is it it has the sort of superkine activities of a, a previous agonist that they've published where it can bind the beta chain without going through the IL-2 receptors alpha chain. So this allows it to stimulate just effector T cells and avoid Tregs, the immunosuppressive cells, which don't help you when you're trying to stimulate T cells to fight cancer. Here, they had this extra tweak where they put in a mutation that dialed down signaling through the IL-2 receptor gamma chain. And the reason they did this was so that they could stimulate the T cells, but not so much that it drove them to exhaustion. And avoiding T cell exhaustion is a big issue for uh, cancer cell therapies. So that was a pretty interesting study that came out in Nature last month. And then another one turning to a story where I always think it's really awesome when you have uh, human genetics informing drug development from the point of view of what to dial up or dial down. And this was a case where I guess it's been noticed that doxorubicin chemotherapy induces cardiotoxicity in cancer patients particularly when those patients have a mutation in a certain protein called, uh, the gene encoding a certain protein called RARG. And so here they showed that a RARG agonist could actually protect heart cells from these patients from chemotherapy-induced cardiotoxicity. So it's a really nice story of connecting human genetics back to new translational opportunities. And that was out of Daniel Bernstein's lab at Stanford and Paul Burridge's lab at Northwestern. So that and more is available in this month's distillery, and I encourage everyone to check it out. You can find those on our website, 
And subscribers receive a monthly dedicated email to the distillery as well. It just glides right into your inbox. So if you're interested, look out for that. And now we have a, a pretty important case out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and it is setting the stage for Catalyst Pharmaceuticals to exercise market exclusivity in the U.S. for another four to five years for its drug to treat Lambert-Eaton myosynthic syndrome. You can just call it LEMS. I'd love that, Steve. Steve, this case has been going on for quite some time now. Jacobus and FDA on one side, Catalyst on the other. What was the ruling and why is it important? So you have to go back a little bit farther in time. It is a very long and complicated story that we've written a lot about. Short form is that there's a drug called amifampridine that was first shown in the 1980s to help people with this rare disorder called LEMS. It's a terrible condition that causes a debilitating pain. Starting in the 1990s, a small company called Jacobus started offering it free in the United States to a few hundred patients under a compassionate use program. Later, Biomarin got approval and started selling it in Europe. They charged about $68,000 a year for it. Then a company was formed in the US, Catalyst, which licensed US rights from Biomarin. After a, a fraught development program with a complete response letter and so on, it finally got uh, approval for its version of the drug, which it calls FURDAPS, in November 2018. It set the price at $375,000 a year. Meanwhile, dial back a few years, when Jacobus first got wind of Catalyst's plan to get approval for the drug in the United States, it tried to get FDA approval for its version. It also had a fraud development program, a complete response letter, and so on. And Catalyst basically beat it in a race to get the first approval and to get what Catalyst expected would be seven years of exclusivity under the Orphan Drug Act. The $375,000 price tag for something that previously had been free aroused a great deal of controversy, including from members of Congress. Senator Bernie Sanders issued press releases, made statements, wrote letters to FDA, and so on. And FDA scrambled to try to find what it thought was a workaround. And what it did was it approved Jacobus's version, but just for the pediatric population. And it said, basically, look, you can, you can think of this disease as being two different diseases, one for kids, one for adults, even though there are only 15 known cases of LEMS in children in the United States. There was no pediatric efficacy data. They just extrapolated the efficacy data from adults. And they didn't really say why you would do that for one company, not for the other. But the idea obviously was, you know, to have a wink and a nod to physicians who wanted to prescribe the Jacobus version, which is called Rusergi, on an off-label basis. It costs about a third what uh, Catalyst charges for their version of the drug. Catalyst sued, they lost, then they appealed, and the federal appeals court last week, as you said, ruled in their favor. The appeals court pointed out that the Orphan Drug Act creates seven years of exclusivity for the same drug to treat the same condition and said that there's no wiggle room for FDA to split a disease arbitrarily into pediatric and adult indications when there's no medical or biological justification. I, I think the short form uh, result of this is going to be a boost 
in sales for Catalyst. In the longer run, I think it is likely to fuel efforts in Congress to find ways to prevent companies from doing what Catalyst did, from finding an old drug, getting it approved, and then profiting, many would say profiteering, from a monopoly on that old drug. It really chips away at the credibility of when, as an industry, we make arguments saying you need to preserve innovation. Moves like this seem counter to that. There are arguments about that. There are other arguments that are saying, though, look, and this is what FDA had done prior to trying to undercut the exclusivity for Catalyst. What FDA had said is that when you've got old drugs that are on the market, they haven't been approved. It's, it's in the public interest to create incentives for companies to get a version approved because they do the clinical trials to demonstrate safety and efficacy, and they manufacture them up to FDA standards in ways that might not happen for those older drugs. What catalysts can do is they can point to Jacobus and say, well, look, they've had manufacturing problems. Three lots of their version of this drug were withdrawn from the market just two weeks ago because they were found to be contaminated with mold and bacteria. They can argue that they're manufacturing a higher quality product and that their price tag isn't out of line with other orphan drugs. If the drug hadn't been available for free before, people wouldn't have blinked. But the fact remains that it was available before and it was free and it's being sold by Biomarin in Europe for a tremendous amount less than what Catalyst is charging in the United States. So yeah, it does fuel a lot of controversy. All righty. That's all we have time for this week. KTT, always great to get the download from you on the distillery. Paul, Steve, thanks for joining. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>